you're visiting with us today, my name's Kyle. I serve as the lead pastor here, and uh, again, I want to welcome you to uh, to our worship service. Happy New Year! I hope that you had a good New Year's, a good Christmas, uh, that all those holidays went well for you. Um, again, it's it's good to be here. We are going to begin a new series today through the book of First John. So, if you have your Bible, you can open to the book of First John. It's nearly at the end of your Bible. Uh, comes just before uh, Jude and Revelation, and so you'll find the, the final letters there, or these three letters grouped together uh, from the Apostle John. We're going to be in the book of 1 John. Um, anyway, so as you're turning there, I'll tell you a little bit about what we're doing. The series is titled, The Fullness of Joy and Devotion to Christ. The Fullness of Joy and Devotion uh, to Christ. I'll tell you a little bit about the background, the author, kind of what's taking place, uh, again, to kind of, I'll only do this once, all right? So I'm not going to do this each week, but I want to set up the series this way so we know where we're at in the space-time continuum, right, as we get started on this, what's taking place. Uh, Again, the author of this is most likely, uh, and we believe this to be true, the Apostle John, who was also known as the beloved disciple of Jesus. He wrote five of our 27 New Testament books. So in your New Testament, you have 27 books. Uh, John is the author of five of those. Uh, He does not identify himself in any of these three letters. In fact, he doesn't identify himself in his gospel either. Uh, But the style and the vocabulary of 1 John is so similar to his gospel uh, that it uh, is just fine for us to assume a common author here. It is extremely likely. Uh, You will notice that as we read our verses today here in just a moment. Uh, Secondly, another reason why we have good reason to believe John wrote this is that major themes and emphasis of these writings overlap between his gospel and what we see in 1 John. We see uh, uh, the full humanity and divinity of Jesus. We see the tight-knit relationship between believing, that is, between faith or doctrine, and obeying God's commandments, which would come down to our works or ethics. Uh, We see the primacy of love as marking um, authentic knowledge of the true God through faith in His Son, so that there ought to be an overflowing of love that issues from the heart of Christians as they have been saved by a loving Father through his Son, by the Spirit. Amen? And that mark shows itself in love. In fact, Jesus says in John uh, chapter 13 that this is one great way that the world will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another, by the way that you love one another. This book is a lot about how we are to rightly love one another. Um, John likely wrote this from Ephesus. So there's a map, I think, if it worked, um, yeah, all right, so a little bit tiny if you're all the way back there, probably. Um, but he likely wrote this from Ephesus, which you see here. Uh, it's kind of a coastal town. It was a port city. Uh, it was a major, major hub of Christianity. Paul spent much time in Ephesus. Timothy spent much time in Ephesus. Uh, we have great reason to believe that John retreated to Ephesus just before the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, and that would be likely where he was when he wrote Uh, these letters. Uh, And so even around it, if you're familiar with Revelation, you'll see some names you may recognize. The church at Laodicea um, and Smyrna and uh, seems like there was a couple of others. Anyway, so yes, yes, yes. So uh, you see some letter, uh, you see some there. These again would have been churches in John's immediate area uh, of impact. I just thought that was an interesting side note. Anyway, so that gives you some context as to where he was as he's writing. He's in Ephesus. There's already been a church established there during Paul's missionary journeys. Um, And so uh, here we have uh, the Apostle John writing this letter. And we need to ask this, what, what might we look forward to seeing in this letter? What might we look forward to learning? What might we look forward to applying uh, in our lives as we read this letter. I want to give you uh, just a few glimpses of some things you can expect to see or to hear uh, or to apply to your own 
life because we need to understand, uh, again, as Hebrews 4.12 lays it out, that God's word is living and active, that it's sharper than any double-edged sword, that it pierces down to the very heart, to the marrow of the man. It reveals his thoughts, its thought reading, so to speak. It knows you. And so as you read the word of God, the word of God is actually reading your own soul. Amen? And we need to be aware of that, that as we open up God's Word, we're opening a living, active thing here. Uh, and God uses His Word to speak to His people. He uses His Word to awake dead hearts to new life. He uses His Word to uh, train His people. Amen? And so as we read the Word of God, we can expect to be equipped. This means every time you open your Bible, if you've made a commitment in the new year to be reading the Scriptures, you should be expecting that every time I open my Bible, whether I see it immediately or know its impact immediately or not, I know that the Holy Spirit is using the Word of God to transform my life. Amen? You should have that conviction that even as you wrestle with words and you think, man, this is hard to understand or this is difficult or this is laborious as I walk through it, you can trust that the Holy Spirit is making these what seem like secretive things known to you. Amen? And he's working them down in you. And so that's what we seek to do as we open up the Word of God. In this uh, letter, John teaches his readers that God is light. He teaches his readers that God is love. He teaches his readers that Christians have passed from death into life, that they did not do this of their own accord. Rather, God loved them and sent his Son to pay for their sins on the cross. He teaches then that God caused those who were dead in sin to be born again, giving them eternal life. He goes on to teach things like this, that with this life, they have received the Holy Spirit who gives spiritual understanding unto maturity, which I was just talking to you about, that as you read the Word of God, the Spirit of God draws you further and further into Christ-likeness, meaning He matures your soul, He matures your mind, He matures your heart, He grows you up, literally so that believers are no longer of the world or of the devil, those are phrases that he uses, but are from God or of God, also phrases we see, and of the truth, another phrase we see. God now abides in his people, and so we understand that we are not alone and that we are God's people. His word is so, or his, his name, so to speak, is written on our foreheads. We belong to him. And his word abides in us as we abide in him. Amen? We see that we abide in light, that Christians abide in the light. So God is the light. We abide in the light. True Christians are those people who know and love God. This is another thing that he's going to set forth, that it's, it's to know right doctrine. It's to understand who Christ is, uh, especially against the heretics that he is up against at this time who are seeking to deny the deity of Christ, just trying to say that Jesus is simply a man and that he's not connected to the eternal Messiah who was promised. They're denying his lordship. They're denying his messiahship. They're denying that he's the savior of, of all who call on his name. And so he goes on to say that they're wrong. <laughs> um, and so Christians abide and lie. True Christians are those who know God and who also love God, right? He will say here that we love him because he first loved us. This, he goes on to add, that you can uh, see by the fruit that they produce. Now, fruit shows up in three ways, and if you want to write these down, you can. They're not on the screen, but it may be something worth remembering as we go through the series. Uh, that the fruit that true believers produce, according to, the, uh, to this letter of John, is that they love God. There's an evident love for God. They love Him. How does that love become evident? Well, he goes on to say that another fruit you will see is that they obey God. They obey God, which goes with what Christ says in John chapter 15, that if you love me, you will obey my commandments. There's a love for God that seeks to obey God. And then the third mark is that they love other believers. They love one another. There's a whole lot in here about right belief, uh, producing right love, right affections for God, which produces right affections for his people. 
He'll be so strong as to say that if you hate your brother, the love of God is not in you. In other words, you are not saved. Strong, right? We'll get into those things in the coming weeks. In summary, <laughs> the book of 1 John teaches us three basics of Christian life, which I've just summed up a second ago, but I'll sum them up this way this time. True doctrine, obedient, obedient living, and fervent devotion. And so therefore, we find the fullness of our joy and our fervent devotion to Jesus Christ, hence the subtitle of the series. This um, is, I think, worthy of the next uh, probably 20 weeks. <laughs> We're going to be in this series through the spring uh, and, and be looking at this uh, just verse by verse, chapter by chapter, as we walk through this book. And so I invite you to come along for the journey. Amen. Would you stand to your feet now as we read the Word of God? When I'm finished reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and you can respond, thanks be to God. We're going to read verses 1 through 4 in 1 John 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have not left us without instruction, uh, but you have also not left us with uh, simply black uh, letters on white pages. Uh, but, Lord, we understand that these words are living and active. And so we ask that by the power of your Spirit today, because of the work that you've done for us in Christ Jesus and that you've raised us also to new life by your Spirit. We ask that your Spirit would open our eyes and our minds and our hearts to see and to understand your Word. We know that we are powerless to read such a book uh, and to understand its meaning without the work of the Spirit in us. And so, Lord, uh, though I have sought uh, to prepare in such a way that I can make these words plain for your people, I too know that I am powerless without the work of your Spirit in their lives. And so I trust that as I plant in water, that you will give the increase today. Oh Lord, we ask that you help our hearts be fertile soil, a place where uh, we can see uh, fruit that is 20 and 30 and 60 and 100 fold. Lord, we attribute all of this to your kindness toward us and that you gave your son Jesus to die for our sins, to save us, Lord, from a life of death and hell and sin. And Lord, you have called us out of darkness into marvelous light. And you have set us on the foundation of Christ Jesus, who is called the cornerstone of this faith. And you have built our faith uh, on those foundational blocks, which are the apostles and the prophets through their writings that we have. And we too now are being built brick by brick into the temple of, of the Holy Spirit, oh, Lord. And we thank you for this. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so if I could have you write down one sentence just to kind of explain what it is we're going to be looking at, it'll, it'll be this, and then I'm going to seek to explain kind of each part of this sentence. But the sentence is this, the manifestation of Christ establishes fellowship and joy for believers. The manifestation of Christ establishes fellowship and joy for believers. Now, I could use different words there, but as always, I try to draw uh, those summaries from the words that are used in the text so that we might rightly understand their usage. Uh, again, the manifestation of Christ establishes fellowship and joy for believers. Let's look at first this idea of the manifestation of Christ. What, 
What is it that John is laying out for his hearers, for his readers, and for us by proxy, right? Those of us who have come to believe because of this same gospel which he talks about here. On the manifestation of Christ, we see this as as he explains it in verses 1 and 2. I'll just read these again. That which was from the beginning. This is an interesting way to start the letter, right? Most of your epistles are going to start to the church of Philippi or to the church at Ephesus or, you know, grace be to you. And, <laughs> you know, and, and, and then there's a signature there from uh, typically Paul or Peter. But here, the Apostle John just goes right on in. says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard. Now, the we here is talking about the apostles. That which we have heard and we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. You can see the word manifest here. The two verses are really thick. They're really dense with the doctrine of Christ, which we would just call Christology, right? It's just the doctrine of who Christ is from beginning to end. Who is he? Uh, which is that, that doctrine is the foundation of the gospel. We have to get Christ right. We have to get Jesus Christ right and our understanding of him correct if we hope to ever truly be saved. We must understand who he is. Amen? We, it's, an, it's part of it to know that we need a Savior, but next you need to identify the Savior. Amen? You need to say with confidence that this is him. I are not him, right? I are, I are not, but he is him. Amen? It's okay to chuckle. Uh, Jesus Christ here is the word of life. Now, in some study of this, that, that word of life, uh, if you have it in the ESV, it's not capitalized. There are some uh, translators who believe that this is not a direct title for Christ. However, I've chosen in my interpretation of this, uh, which comes in line with the interpretation of many others. I'm not making something up here, but I've chosen to see this as a, a statement of who Christ is. But also understand that in John's writings, as we see in the Gospel of John, there are often a couple of meanings to his phrases. And this could be another instance where he is stating something about who Christ is while also stating who Christ is. Does that make sense? That he is the word of life and that the word of life comes to us through him. Amen. That would be a statement about who he is. And so Jesus Christ, the word of life, which was from the beginning. This is from the pre-dawn of time, right? When we say from the beginning, he's not talking about from the beginning of his birth, right? His conception, his, his holy conception by the Spirit of God uh, with Mary. Um, that's, that's not it. What he has here in mind is the pre-dawn of time, as we see in John 1.1, which he writes, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is a very similar statement here in 1 John one. So John is pointing his readers to the pre-existence of Christ. He is the eternally begotten Son of the Father. Therefore, he was before his physical manifestation, right? He existed before he was manifested physically in our presence. Now, why does that matter? Well, it matters because he's getting to what the heretics of the day, and our day as well, to be sure, what the heretics are proclaiming. There's, there's no, uh, there's, you know, Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. There, there's no evil new under the sun. It might show up in different ways, but it always seeks to deny the deity of Christ. It always seeks to deny the lordship of Christ. That, that heresy has been around since the garden. Did God actually say? Well, God doesn't mean that. He just doesn't want you to be happy. He doesn't want you to be like him. What is that doing? It's denying the deity of Christ. It's promoting the deity of man, which there is none, to be sure, but it's trying to get you there, which is what pride does. And so the same thing happens here in the heretics that are around them. 
Christ is not Lord. Christ is not the Messiah. You need to continue to follow us, right? It's a promotion of self. And so any good preacher who's worth his salt or worth his weight, right, will say to you, you do not follow me. You follow Christ Jesus. Amen? And any preacher who seeks to have someone follow him or to promote him in some way or to become his follower, to give to his campaign, right, is not a gospel preacher. They're preaching a false gospel. And they'll be damned alongside of it if they don't repent. And we need to see it as that. We can't, we can't just waffle on such things. Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is the God-man. He's the God-man. And that's why this matters, because eternal life is defined as knowing God. And in John 17, 3, as Jesus is praying there to the Father, he says this, he says, and this is eternal life, that they know you. Now he's praying for his followers, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ. Now he's praying about himself, whom you have sent. So what's eternal life? It's that you have fellowship with the Father and with his Son, which is the purpose of why John writes. It's exactly what he's saying, right? He was made manifest, and he was proclaimed so that you may have fellowship with, one, with us and so with one another, yes, but as we have fellowship with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And he goes on there to name the Son as another jab in the eye of, his, of the heretics of the day the false teachers. He's not afraid to jab the eyes of false teachers, and so we should not be afraid to jab the eyes of them either. Then he who is eternal life does not enjoy some sort of immortal solitude. This is what we need to understand about Christ. He's not up there enjoying some immortal solitude where he just exists forever in some happy little space detached from the Father, detached from his people. That is not the existence of Christ, whether he is always from the beginning of time, meaning from the beginning, he is always in conscious, continuous, and intimate communion as son with the Father. It's never been unbroken except once on the cross. My, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the moment that he wears our sin, there's a separation of sorts between the Father and the Son, but it's so that he can wear our sin for us. It was immediately restored by the Spirit of God. Immediately. And that which is eternal put on flesh and dwelt among us. This is what he's saying. He's saying that which is eternal we have heard and seen and looked upon and touched. The word of life was made manifest and we have seen it. Now, we're coming out of the Christmas season. So I trust that your doctrine of the birth, the incarnation, is good right now, <laughs> right? You've heard a lot about Christ being born, about the advent of the Messiah. And so we're familiar with the truth right now, especially the infinite became an infant. The Son of God became the son of a carpenter and his wife. The Creator became like one of his creations as he put on flesh, John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, John testifies as a witness of Christ, Jesus. He testifies as an apostle, one who was with Christ. And he is saying, we, along with the other apostles, we have seen and we have heard and we have touched Jesus Christ. These three together. Right, seeing, hearing, touching, they comprise the conclusive proof of material reality that the Word did put on flesh, that the Word did dwell among us. And we testify to this because we have seen Him and we have heard Him and we have touched Him. Right? You think about the moment of Thomas who doubted the resurrection of Christ. Christ appeared to the ten, right, who were remaining because Judas offed himself. And he appears to the ten who are remaining, and there's an eleventh who's not present, Thomas. And, and when they report to him that Jesus has come, we've seen him, we've touched him. And he says, unless I touch his wounds, I will not believe. 
And what happens? Christ appears. Christ appears there with him. And what does he do? Rather than rebuking, he says, see my wounds. Touch them. As further evidence, they ate with Christ. They ate with Christ, the resurrected Christ. Amen? So John is saying, look, all of these people around us are saying, in one hand, that Christ is not the Messiah, and he's not the Messiah because he died. He didn't establish a kingdom. They're, they're, they're trying to decry his Messiahship. But on the other hand, John is saying, but look, he rose again, and we saw him, and we heard him, and we touched him. And these three bear witness that he has indeed risen. We testify to this. Had Jesus Christ not put on flesh, had he not risen again and shown his flesh, then this truth would not be so. We would have very many reasons to doubt the Messiahship of Christ. For people can only know about God what he is pleased to reveal about himself to them and praise God he has chosen to reveal himself. Amen? That we might know him. If you'll remember, too, you, think, you might be sitting there thinking, well, if I could touch, I would believe. If I could see, I would believe. Well, that's just simply not true. It might help you. You might think it would help you. But Christ told Thomas, when Thomas says, now that I have touched you, I believe. Now that I've seen you, I believe. And Jesus told him, he says, blessed are those who will not see and yet believe. You and I have not laid eyes on Christ physically, have we? If you say yes, we're going to find you some help, okay? We're going to ask you what medications you've been taking, okay? We haven't seen Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him. Why? Because the Spirit of God bears witness that he's alive. Amen? And so we believe. We trust. We live our lives for him. And John stresses all of this because of the heretics, again, who are seeking to disrupt the early Christian community. They're trying to deny the physical manifestation of Christ. And we cannot separate Jesus from Christ Christ is not his last name, but Jesus and Christ go together better than peanut butter and jelly. Amen? Jesus and Christ cannot be separated. They are the same person. They are both God and man. And, and, and we need to stress the importance of this doctrine today, that the God-man did walk the earth, that he did die for the sins of humanity, that he did rise again, and that he lives now, in the presence of God, where he rules and reigns over all of the events of the world. And that everything will one day bow to his lordship. Everyone will testify that he is Lord. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord, Paul writes in Philippians 2, verse 11. But this is important today because there are scientists and radicals and mystics who seek to destroy the doctrine of the Son of God who put on flesh to save his people from their sins. They want to deny the existence of Jesus Christ. But it's the message that we proclaim. And we proclaim it boldly. We proclaim it lovingly. We proclaim it with passion because this is the message of eternal life is that the word of life put on flesh. He dwelt among us. He lived a perfectly sinless life. He died on the cross for sinners, and he rose again on the third, third day, defeating death and hell. And humans who were altogether unlike the God-man, nothing like him other than we have flesh, we are only sinners by our birth. We are only sinners by our nature. We are children of wrath like the rest of mankind, Ephesians 2 tells us. Yet God chooses to save to the uttermost 
all of them who will repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ and his atonement for their sins becomes their atonement. Such belief then results in new life and they become new creations in Christ Jesus, according to 2 Corinthians 5.17, which is by the saving grace of God, according to Ephesians 2, verse 6 and 8. Amen? They're saved by God's grace. Because he's rich in mercy and with great love, he has put Christ, his own son, forward for you. So that you could have new life. So that you could enjoy the community of the saints under or with, as the foundation, your communion with Christ. Your communion with his Father. 1 John 1, 3 says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. The manifestation of Christ establishes fellowship and joy for believers. Now let's look at the fellowship of believers. The fellowship of Believers, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Boom. The proclamation of these gospel truths was not an end in itself. We don't want to miss this because this is life now. If, if belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ was the end of it, if that was the end of it, then you might as well kick dust. You might as well kill over after belief. But that's not the end of it. John now goes on to define the immediate end and the ultimate end of belief in the gospel. The immediate end is fellowship. The immediate end is fellowship, and the ultimate end is joy. So let's look at fellowship. The purpose of the proclamation of the gospel is here stated not in terms of salvation, which is part of it, yes, but of fellowship, because if Salvation is properly understood. It is nothing less than fellowship. Amen? Now, this word for fellowship is the word koinonia, which is just really fun to say. But it's important because it's a distinctly Christian word. The pagans did not invent this idea of koinonia. Koinonia exists. Fellowship this way exists. Because you, as a Christian, have fellowship with the Father and with His Son. You have koinonia with the Father and with His Son, meaning you've been brought near to them, and you share in what they share. And so, too, then, that is your foundation. You share koinonia, or fellowship, with other believers. Is it not a bit weird to you, strange to you, to sit in a room with such diversity? with so many different stories and so many different histories and so many different raisings and occupations and pursuits and loves and desires, right? I mean, it's, it's strange that we would come together under anything other than something supernatural has taken place in our hearts and minds. We have been saved. We have been saved by Christ Jesus We've been given new life, and so therefore we have new desires, we have new pursuits, and the fellowship of the brethren or the fellowship of the saints matters deeply to us. Amen? All hell will not keep me from worshiping with you all on Sunday mornings. Amen? It's a great joy. It's a great joy. The immediate is fellowship. If, proper, if salvation is to be properly understood, it's nothing less than fellowship. The meaning of salvation in its widest embrace includes the reconciliation to God, 
in Christ. That is that fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, that John mentions here. But it also includes a holiness of life. You're growing from one degree of glory to another in holiness, so to speak, in Christ-likeness. You're being matured. And it's incorporation in the church that you may have fellowship with us, he writes. So this fellowship is the meaning of eternal life. Again, John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, I read this earlier, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What is eternal life? That they know you and they know me. And together they, knowing us, know one another. Amen? There's fellowship not just with one another. Our highest fellowship is our fellowship with Christ, which operates as the thing that we're looking unto every time we gather, whether that's in a home group or biblical manhood or womanhood or Sunday school or worship on Sunday mornings or we gather to, uh, to, to play in the park together. Our highest, our highest pursuit is our fellowship with Christ. And it's also the foundation of our fellowship with one another. Meaning it's what we stand on as we fellowship with each other. We stand on it and we look to it at the same time. And so we pursue it with one another. Just as the Son who is eternal life was eternally with the Father, so he purposes that we should have fellowship with them and one another. And so again, I say to you, fellowship is a distinctly Christian idea, and it communicates the common participation in the grace of God. It communicates the salvation of Christ. It communicates the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is our spiritual birthright as believers. This fellowship is our common possession of the triune God. We have a common possession of God the Father, the Son, the Spirit, and that makes us one with each other. Amen? This is why you can read the latter half of Romans 12, and you can read verses like, weep with one another, rejoice with one another, understand that you are the body of Christ, and the gifts are diverse, and one gift cannot say to the other, I have no need of you. Right? We're bonded together in Christ. He is our head. We are his body. We are his people. In John 17, 21, Jesus continuing his prayer. He says that they may all be one. In this part of the, the prayer, he is praying for all believers to come which would include you and I today and all who will come after us and all who have come before us between us and Christ. Amen. But he says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Amen. It's the testimony of the saints, the fact that there are saints who trust in the Lord through trial and hardship, and through suffering, and pain, and unto death, unto losing their heads, right? We stand on the shoulders of people who have lost head, and limb, and life for Christ. And we know the gospel today because brave men and women have paid the ultimate price that we might know it. Now, we must understand there is a place reserved for martyrs in heaven. Amen? And they're worthy of our salute and our praise and, and our thankfulness. But you and I should be no less ready to give life and limb for Christ should our number be called. But what creates that in you is just a general like manliness or womanliness that just says, all right, I'm going to buck up, and if I have to do this, I'll do it. Well, no. No. That may exist in the military to some extent, but that is not what exists in Christianity. What exists in Christianity is the witness of the Spirit in you who says, I cannot deny Christ, though it may cost me my life. I'm bonded together with Christ in heaven, and though you may take my life, you cannot harm my soul. Amen? And you and I are knit together with that same fervor 
that same desire to make Christ known. It knits us together because we have been known by Christ. And so we're willing, we should be, we should be willing to give up wrong pursuits, wrong desires, things that take us from Christ. Amen? Things that detract our attention, things we think are more worthy of our pursuit. We should be careful not to forsake the fellowship that we have with Jesus and that we have with the saints. He's called us to this. And he's prayed for it that it may be so. And so you have a twofold, what I'm identifying here is a twofold fellowship for believers. There's your fellowship with the Father and his Son, and there's your fellowship with the saints. And our fellowship with one another arises and depends on our fellowship with the Father and his Son through the Spirit or by the Spirit. You understand that in Ephesians 1, we are told that in Christ you have become co-heirs with Christ. By the grace of God and the mercy and the love that the new birth has brought to you so that you may have fellowship with the Father through the Son by the Spirit. This is the work of God in your life. And so our fellowship with one another depends on our being in them. In other words, our our fellowship with one another is impossible without the fellowship of the Father and the Son. Our human fellowship arises from the divine fellowship of the Trinity. The Father loves the Son by the Spirit, and the Son loves the Father by the Spirit, and so do we love the Father and the Son by the Spirit. This is why Christ says, it is good that I go from you, because I'm going to send a helper fit for you, or a helper not fit for you, sorry, that's Genesis, a helper for you, who is going to bear witness about me and the Father, He's going to teach you things. He's going to give you instruction along the way. He'll help you recall the words of Christ in those moments where you need them most. Right? He's the one who bears witness that we are His, that we belong to God because of Christ. And it's that fellowship that the Father and the Son have together that we now have with the Father and the Son because of His great love for us. Because he has set his seal, as the Spirit is called in Ephesians 1, upon us. That it's a guarantee of our inheritance with Christ. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. And so do we love the Father and the Son. By the Spirit who gives us eternal life. And so our shared love for the Father and the Son by the Spirit unites us together as Christ's body because he is our head. And so there's no such thing as a Christianity that does not involve the fellowship of the saints. I'm so grateful that you have chosen on the first Sunday in a new year to be at church. Because it's not just simply that you are at church. You are among a fellowship of saints. And if you're an outsider, if you're an unbeliever, and you kind of smirk and laugh at these kinds of things, and you're you think this is just mysticism, then I have another thing for you to know. You're wrong, and you need to repent, and you need to believe in Christ and enjoy shared fellowship with the Father and with the Son and with his people. We will gladly welcome you into this place. Gladly. And we'll help you follow him, just as we're trying to help one another in the same pursuit. Amen? Church, please give an amen to that. The Father loves the Son, amen, and the Son loves the Father. And so we have fellowship with the Father and Son. We have fellowship with one another. There's this phrase around these parts that you can get just as much of God on a deer stand or at the lake or insert phrase here as you can and in church. But I want you to know, again, that this is a lie. You cannot forsake the assembly and the fellowship of the saints and mature in Christ's likeness. You want to understand the ramifications of forsaking the assembly, just look back at COVID. 
Look back at all the churches who shut down and all the Christians who decided we don't need church or we'll watch church in our pajamas online, something we tried as well for a few weeks. And we quickly realized we have misunderstood the doctrine of the church. We've misunderstood what Christ is doing when his people gather. And so we repented and said, we're coming together regardless of what illnesses may exist or not exist. Amen? But if you look back at the damage that was done during that time, we, we hear of lost people who have never once stepped foot back in this place since then. We've had people return who left during that time, and praise God they did. But I see it across the churches in America. I talk to friends who were pastors and who attend other churches. The same thing has happened, and many of them stayed shut down for months. Well, what's, what's the deal here? The deal is we don't understand what takes place when we come together to worship. Not well enough. Not so much so that we think, well, I can just forsake this time. I don't have to be here. I can take it or leave it. It can be part of my week or it cannot be part of my week. This is not true, Christian. You must give yourself to worship alongside your brothers and sisters. You cannot find as much of God, quote unquote, on the deer stand or at the lake or in your home as you will when you come here. You cannot forsake the assembly and the fellowship of the saints and mature in Christ's likeness. For it is our shared pursuit of Christ that we spur one another to love and good works, and that is to belief and obedience. Hebrews 10, 24, 25. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day, the day of Christ's return, drawing near. We must not forsake this. The doctrine of the heretics was seeking to disrupt the fellowship of the church. However, John rightly establishes that the true gospel message produces true fellowship. The manifestation of Christ establishes fellowship and joy for believers. Let's look at joy for the joy of believers now. 1 John 1, 4, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Our joy here, this phrase, means both our joy and your joy. Why? Because he's just laid out, we have fellowship together. And so that is our common pursuit is the same pursuit. This is about our joy being complete. And together as we do this, our joy will be complete. John is including all the apostles and all the saints here, all those who are around the world serving the Lord today, right? We're all included in this this message that we deliver in this letter is for the completion of joy in every one of us, John is saying. Now that is to say, that which we have read already is for our joy. As we've read about the manifestation of Christ Jesus, that he put on flesh and he dwelt among us and we've seen him and we've heard him and we've touched his resurrected body. We know that he rose again and that the gospel is true. And so we proclaim it to you that you might have fellowship with us and that our fellowship would be with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. All of that is for your joy. Christ wants to fill you with joy, brothers and sisters. For too long, we've had this view of God that he's just joy zapping, that he's joy taking, that he's not interested in the happiness of his people at all. He just wants them to drum on and on in obedience. And that there's no fruit of that. There's no joy. There's no life in that. But nothing is further from the truth. Again, you've been fed a lie by the deceiver. The father of lies who's been from the beginning a father of lies. It's all that he can do is lie to you. And he has told you that there is no joy in serving Christ. But the word of God says, no, there is great joy. In fact, there is completion of joy as you look to Christ. You can have joy. Joy unhindered. Christians should be walking around with joy. 
doesn't mean you have to walk around with a fake smile all the time, but you should at least be joyous. It should be something that marks you, that you're growing in joy. You're not growing in anger or bitterness. You're not growing in grumpiness as you age, right? You're becoming more and more joy-filled because you're becoming more and more Christ-filled. And so he's saying that all that I've written for you is for your joy, but it's also an introduction into the rest of the letter. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. It's going to bring us joy as you hear these things and believe these things and obey these things and begin to love one another well. That's going to fill us with joy. It's going to fill us with joy as we proclaim the gospel to you and new people come to Christ and you begin to disciple them and bring them into the fellowship of the Father and the Son with his people. That's going to give us joy, but it's also going to give you great joy as you believe these things and as you obey these things and as you submit yourself to Christ Jesus and his lordship of your life, you're going to be full of joy brothers and sisters this is what he wants you to know you're going to be full of joy your joy may be complete i am intentionally saying this over and over because i need you to get this in here not just here i too want to be filled with joy as i watch you and your joy becoming more and more complete with each passing year And so what he's getting at is yet what I'll say to you and the rest of this letter is meant that our joy may be complete as well. So brothers and sisters, I need you to remember this phrase in 1 John 1, verse 4. Mark it if you're into marking your Bible. The rest of this letter is meant to help you be complete in joy. In John 15, 11, Jesus says this. He says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Do you know what he had just told them? That I am the vine and you are the branches. And if you'll abide in me as I abide in the Father, if you'll abide in my love as I abide in the Father's love, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This means that everything about your life is about trying to usher your desires to the left. It's trying to get you this direction. This is Satan's motives for you. This is what he wants for you is to just mess up your desires so that you'll have wrong pursuits and you'll have wrong ideas of what joy must be. Well, I must forsake my marriage so that I can be happy. I must forsake the doctrines of Christ so that I'll be happy. I must forsake the doctrine of obedience so that I can be happy. I must go on and on into my sinfulness and pursue my own heart, which is the sole message of modern psychology is you should pursue whatever your heart desires. Tell me that's not a lie. If modern psychology works so well, then why are the, uh, the suicide rates of young men skyrocketing? Because you've been fed a lie. I'm tired of people being lied to. You cannot pursue whatever your heart wants and find joy. There's no joy in it, brothers and sisters. Forsake it. Forsake it. And don't listen to me, but look at the words that are in front of you. This is the word of God speaking to you. And he's saying to you right now, I've written these things to you so that your joy may be complete. I'm not making this up. This is for your joy. And we look at this and think about it, think about it. We look at these kinds of words and we scoff and we mock. And how do we scoff and we mock? Because we go do directly the opposite. We march to the left. Christ is saying to you today, there is a still more better way. And I have spoken these things to you that my joy may be in you. Think about it. <laughs> Hebrews 12.1. Christ endured the cross for the sorrow that was set before him. Joy. Christ endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. What was the joy? It was the fellowship that he would have with his people, 
and that they would have with one another. And he knew that as he pursued his death for them, as he paid the penalty for their sins, and that as he defeated death and hell and the grave, and as he rose again, that now, finally, people could be set free. They could be raised to new life by the Spirit of God, and they could pursue joy, just as he pursued joy. But joy would be found in obeying him. It would be found in believing that he is the Son of God, and that nothing and no one can save you from your sins except Christ Jesus. And be sure, brother and sister, or friend, you need to be saved from your sins. But nothing would save you except Christ. And if you'll believe in him, but belief, again, is not mere mental assent because even the demons believe in shudder, James Wright in chapter 1. Even the demons believe in shudder. That's more than we can say for most Christians. There ain't a lot of shuddering going on, is there? It's just, I believe. I believe Jesus is real. I believe he died for my sins. Oh, yeah, then why do you so unashamedly walk around sinning? You don't even shudder at his name. You don't shudder that you defile the name of Christ, that you make a mockery of Christianity, that you make a mockery of the death of Jesus. See, we're all in need of salvation. And even sometimes when we think we've arrived at it in our mind, we're still far away. So the message that happens to be in 1 John is this message of checking your heart and your soul before the Lord to see that you are truly in Christ. You're going to have to measure fruit as we go through this. You're going to have to say whether or not you're a fruit-producing Christian. Do my actions line up with my mouth? Do my actions line up with the things I say I believe about the Lord? You're going to have to come face to face with that, but I invite you to do it because it's a good thing. And what lies in front of you, if you will, is complete joy. Not to say there's not hardship. There's hardship when we face our sins, is there not? But there's joy, complete joy, as we obey Christ. The secret of the fullness of joy, John Calvin said, it is the complete and perfect felicity which we, which we obtain from the gospel. In other words, it is the fellowship with the Father and the Son and one another which the proclamation and belief of the gospel creates. The immediate purpose of the gospel is the establishment of the fellowship with the Father and with the Son and with one another. But the ultimate purpose of the gospel is the completion of Joy. This is the divine order as set forth in John's letter here. It's that the gospel begets fellowship, begets joy. The one leads to the other. As you believe the gospel, you join the fellowship of the Father and the Son along with other believers, and then you join in joy. Your joy is being made complete. Now, while joy is going, while joy is happening, it's going to be an ongoing fruit of belief in the gospel. It's going to be an ongoing fruit of the fellowship that you have with the Father and with His Son and with other believers. And so we will not know the completion of this joy until we arrive in heaven. I want you to know that. I'm not promising, nor is John promising, that you'll know the completion of joy here. But he's saying the completion of joy awaits you in heaven. This world of sin means that it is impossible to have perfect fellowship with the Father and the Son and one another. We will sin. We will fail to believe. We will stumble along the way. We will hurt one another, for that is the curse of sinfulness. And we need to be aware of that. Part of having a family here is, is that we act like a family, which means there's going to be hurts, there's going to be pain, there's going to be strife but we overcome it because of our common pursuit of Christ Jesus. Amen? And so we forgive and we lend forgiveness willingly because we understand that we have been forgiven by the Father through Jesus. And we're tenderhearted toward one another because God has been tenderhearted toward us. 
You see what I'm saying? And so the family is knit together in the love of Christ and therefore shares in the love of Christ. And yet we know what lies beyond the golden stream, so to speak. Heaven and the glory of the Father with His Son and a host of saints lies just over there, brothers and sisters. I've really been unable to talk about heaven since when he passed without crying, so. Always try. But it lies just on the other side of some decades. It lies on the other side of some heartache and some suffering. And so that we're not all doom and gloom here, it lies on the other side of some glimpses of joy, some victories, some gracious gifts from the Lord. But just beyond the dash that falls after your birth date, you will find your end date one day. And yet, it won't be the end at all. Rather, it's the beginning of complete joy in the presence of And every moment for the Christian between here and there is for the building of complete joy. And every moment in that, God is working according to his goodwill and his pleasure for your complete joy. We are promised in Philippians 1.6 that he who begins the work is faithful to bring it to completion. In Psalm 16.11, the psalmist writes there, I've read this before probably a hundred times at this point, You make known to me the path of life, but listen to this. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. You see, you're in good company holding out the future presence of Christ and the Father, knowing that joy lies there, holding that out as your hope. You're in good company. For even David here writes, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, I encourage you a couple of weeks ago to read this book. Paul writes there, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. One way to say this is that it's going on and on from one degree of joy to the next. For this light momentary affliction, he continues, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That as we look to, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, I mean they change like the wind, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And it is to this ultimate end, brothers and sisters, that he who was from the beginning appeared in time and that what the apostles heard and what they saw and what they touched they have proclaimed to us so that the substance of this gospel was the historical manifestation of that which is eternal and its purpose was and is a fellowship with one another which is based on the fellowship that we have with the father and the son which outflows in fullness of joy Christianity, brothers and sisters, is not vague. It's not an abstract set of ideas or an ethical system. It is, above all, the good news of what God has done in our space and time It's a tangible experience of sending His Son to rescue us from the destruction that our own sins are bringing upon us apart from Him. And this is what John wants to make known to his readers. Amen. The manifestation of Christ establishes fellowship and joy for believers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You again for your word. Lord, I am here now to petition you that by your spirit you would move hearts and minds 
toward your Son, Christ, by the power of your Spirit, that you would draw us into belief, that we would surrender ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus, that we would live for him, that we would understand that our submission to Christ is meant for complete joy. Lord, I pray, I ask that you would deliver us from deception. You would deliver us from the evil one who seeks to destroy faith, who seeks to destroy your people. Even now, we understand that there are those who are caught in his snare, that they are following the desires and the pursuits of their own hearts, And they have no intentions of slowing. But Lord, we understand also that there is no force more great, more powerful than the Holy Spirit which works to give life to those who are dead. And we ask for life for those, for those who are deceived, for those who are wandering around in their own lordship. Would you uncover their eyes? Help them to see clearly. Help them to see Christ and their need for a Lord, their need for a Savior. May they be drawn unto him for the salvation of their souls. And Father, for my brothers and sisters in here, I ask that you would deliver us as well from deception. Lord, we are guilty of assumptions we are guilty of taking for granted that which is eternal and we need you to rouse us from our slumber to awaken our hearts and minds to see once again our first love lord we beg it of you for again we understand that we are powerless to this end on our own we too need your holy spirit at work in us. I'd like for you to take a moment to pray, to repent if repentance is what the Lord is leading you to, to believe if there's something from this you need to believe that you have not, to trust if you have not trusted Christ, Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is truly a double-edged sword piercing the depths of us. And that by it, it becomes like a mirror for us and that we're able to see, we're able to see clearly those things in us which do not bring you glory. Those things in which we are glory seekers of our own instead. And so I pray, Lord, that you would grant repentance and faith today. That you would help us to follow you. To trust you, Lord. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.